Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. We're going to be finishing out our Created for Significance series with a message entitled, A Look at the Life to Come. Has anyone ever heard of the saying, there's only two things to be sure of in life, death and taxes? We're going to be talking about one of those things. Probably most of us have already put in our taxes for the year. Anybody here not submit their taxes yet? Really? Bad. (laughs) You still got a month. Um, Actually, I think more than that. I think they extended it. But since most of us have probably taken care of that this year, that leaves the other thing. And I know we don't like to think about death as much because it's depressing. It's a little scary. We're we're not totally convinced sometimes of of what happens at death. And that's what's going to make this message a little challenging for many of us. So if, if you feel God poking at you in this message, just keep in mind, I am only the mailman. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. So it is not me, it is him. Because when I was writing this, it was very convicting to me. So I know if it's poking at me, it's probably going to poke at some other people. So in Luke chapter 16, that's where we're going to be today, in 19 through 31, Jesus finishes what for him was probably a very, very challenging time and a long day of teaching because he covers three full chapters in the Gospel of Luke. And this is taking place a few weeks before his death and resurrection. So this is a couple weeks before the cross that Jesus is teaching this. And when you see, study the Gospels, you see an interesting trend in the life and ministry of Jesus. It gets more intense the closer he gets to the cross. Generally, when you look at human pastors and how they do their ministry, they usually do the opposite. They start off all hard. They start off all telling people what to do, shouting and yelling and, 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 and hellfire and brimstone about that. But as a person ages, at least with me, I think I try to become a little bit more self-aware. And I start to understand what a big mess I can be at times, and I start to really appreciate, at least in my life, God's grace. I need God's grace because my obedience stinks on the best day sometimes. And so I understand, and it, and, and it softens you after a while when you start to understand that, that you need God's grace more and more in your life. Jesus and his ministry is increasing in intensity the closer he gets to the cross. And this final story that we're seeing is one of the most intense ones that he told during his ministry here on earth. And we know that because of the intensity of the teaching that we're going to look at today, that this was very important to him. When we say famous last words, we always ask, what was those last words? We always think those will be the most important words they say. Or these were some of the last words of Jesus on this earth. So we're going to really look at them because this story reveals much about what motivated Jesus. And we see that in the way he tells this story. In Luke chapter 16, he tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus. And it's a short story, but it's packed full of meaning. It's told in two brief scenes. Scene one here on earth and scene two in the afterlife. In scene one, we meet two of the four characters in this story. The obvious ones. The rich man and we meet Lazarus. But let's first establish who this story is actually about. Well, Jesus tells us who it's about. 
he starts off the story by saying there was a rich man. So he, that's who he really wants us to focus on here and, and, and who he wants us to, to really study. And Jesus tells us a little bit about him. He's, he's lavishly rich. This guy is probably one of the most richest people in his area. He's, he's lavish in the way he dresses, the way he eats, the way he throws parties, and the way he lived every day. And we also see his character. We see that he is a hard man. He's probably a little arrogant. He probably thinks about very few people except for himself. And we know this because of the way he treats the second person in this story, Lazarus. Lazarus is the exact opposite of this man. Lazarus is completely dependent upon God, and he knows it. Lazarus is in a very bad physical condition. Maybe he had some sort of leprosy or something. We know that his, his, he was probably somewhat lame and had sores all over his leg. And day after day, the people who, who took care of Lazarus would come and put him at the doorstep or the, or the front gate of where this guy lived. Begging was actually a profession back then for people who couldn't do anything else. They would put them in a public space where they could be able to get some money for themselves and take care of themselves. So people would come and drop him off at this rich man's gate. But for the most part, he's ignored his entire life. Maybe somebody would toss him a coin once in a while. Maybe somebody would have an extra apple that they bought at the market and toss it to him. But he's ignored and he's allowed to suffer without so much of a prayer or a crumb of bread. In fact, it says in Luke 16, 21, that Lazarus longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Now, I know that when you and I hear these words and hear this word table, we think of a modern banquet table at a fancy restaurant or a rich person's house. I don't know if you've been in a really rich person's house or a really, really fancy restaurant like somewhere in, in Chicago or something where, you know, cheapest thing on the menu is 100 bucks, and that was just to walk in the door, you know. But you see tables like rich mahogany or cherry tables, and, and they're just glazed. You see artwork. You see fine carpet on the floor. It's just really, really fancy. That's, that's, that's the kind of picture that Jesus is painting for us here. But the first century version of this is a little bit different than what we're thinking of. When Jesus said these words, everyone in his audience had a picture of a Middle Eastern banquet with guests, with servants, with onlookers, watching and waiting for the after-dinner entertainment. I actually went through several of the books I have. I have a lot of books that, that deal with the culture of the first century Palestine so you can understand the Bible for the time it was written. And this is what they say a banquet was like in first century Israel. It says that banquets with, the enter with entertainment were a public affair. The rich people would hold these. You would go through the gateway to the court, and the, co and the doors would, be, would stand open. For those who were invited to the meal, there was a couple uh, phases here, those who were invited to the meal were usually the upper crust of that society. They would sit at a very long, low table, or more often, even great wooden dishes were placed along the center of the room with low couches on either side, which guests placed in order of their importance or order of how the master of that banquet felt about them, would then lean on their um, left elbow 
toward the table and they would dine like that with their feet away from the table. The servants would stand behind the couches and behind the servants, the other people of the village would crowd in. They didn't have any right to eat at the banquet, but they could come and see the entertainment that was afterwards. And this is how Middle Eastern feasts have have gone on for centuries. And Lazarus, the beggar, all of his sores, all of his his potentially being lame, all that, he would have been in the background of the background watching people eat while he starves. Now, I want to point out something right here that makes this biblical account very important to us. The fact that Jesus gives this beggar a name is very, very significant. Because you can't look in the Gospels and find another example of another parable that he gives where he names a person. That's very, very significant here. Also significant, Luke doesn't mention that this is a story or a parable. Often the gospel writers would say Jesus would speak, spoke a parable to them. Therefore, most theologians and Bible experts have concluded what Jesus is telling about here is an actual account of two people. Two people that him in his godly omniscience knows about or has experience about. It could have even been an account of people who lived in that town. If it is, then we really need to pay attention to the truth that Jesus is speaking here because it gets all the more real the further we get into the account. So that's scene one. We're going to go on to scene two now. And it's Lazarus dying and being carried to heaven and the rich man dying and going to hell. Scene two is that afterlife. It's where the development of the story takes place and the two other characters in this story are introduced. And here it, is, it becomes clear why Jesus tells us this story. The third character in the story is introduced at the beginning of the scene, and it's Abraham, the spiritual father of the Jewish nation. Now Abraham is an important historical figure. He is the father of the three, what's called the three monotheistic faiths on earth, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They are all three point all the way back to Abraham. So roughly three quarters of the world believe that he is their spiritual father. So he is a very significant figure here in that Jesus is pointing the Jewish people that he's speaking to back to their, the very father of, their, of the Jewish nation. And I want you to notice that the angels deposit Lazarus at Abraham's side, literally right next to his chest. And you say, well, why does that matter? Because what Jesus is really describing here is another banquet, a banquet that is to come. And if Lazarus lands right next to Abraham, what does that say about Lazarus? Very important person went right up next to the the person in charge of that that banquet. If Lazarus is seated right next to the host, it's saying that he is about as special as it gets. And here's a picture to grasp. Jesus is telling the story of a guy who, in his life, hardly ever got treated well. 
He didn't get any of the breaks. He didn't get any of the opportunities. He didn't get his own house. He didn't get any special honors, recognitions. He didn't get the new 4x4. He didn't get the new cell phone. He didn't get any of this thing. The only thing he ever got was gutters, sores, and front gates to lean on. But he did have one thing, and that was faith and worship of the one true God. So in the next life, what happens? He gets the seat of honor right next to Abraham. In the Jewish mind, you could not have a reward any better than that. Jesus couldn't tell him at this point that actually the best table in heaven would be the one next to him, but Jesus uses an example that they can get behind. Now let's switch and look at the rich man. How does the rich man wind up? Not too good. It gives a description of him going to hell. His calloused heart, his arrogance, his self-sufficiency, and his unresponsiveness to God delivered him, and this here is the critical point, to a place and making of his own choosing. He chose this in life. All of his life he's lived as if he doesn't need God. All of his life he's put God at arm's length. All of us know people like this. In effect, he's saying, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't need you in my life. I want to be my own Lord. I want to be my own God. I don't need you. So in the afterlife, God grants his wish. Just like he does for all of those who choose to ignore, to fend off, or to push away his invitations today. You know, a lot of people ask, How can a God of love send people to hell? Well, friends, hell exists for people who choose to exclude God from their lives so they can have what they wish for. Only it's for all eternity. Even though God isn't always obvious in this life, He is everywhere. He is present everywhere and discernible if you just look. Anyone who looks at the stars in the sky, sometimes after work in the ER, I'll drive away from the hospital, go out in the county a little bit, and just look at the stars and spend time in prayer. And just be amazed again at the wonder of God. If you look at a flower, you have to admit that the creator of this universe is unique, wonderful. He's full of beauty and awesomeness. In heaven, though, God's presence is very real. It's manifest. It's all pervasive. If we want to talk about green energy, we will have green energy in heaven. We won't need coal-fired power plants. We won't need nuclear power because the glory of God lights everything. That is how pervasive His presence is. And the Bible says that in His presence there is fullness of joy. But in hell... God's manifest presence is deliberately absent. That's why it's called the utter darkness. No presence, no glory, no goodness. Just blackness and just emptiness. Why did God create hell? God created hell in order to respect the choice of those who have chosen against him. And that is what the rich man 
in this story has done. The rich man never really thought through the consequences of his choices here on earth. He never consciously probably verbalized to himself that pushing God away throughout his entire life on earth would mean he would spend an eternity without him. In fact, I think he, like most people, will be surprised when he finds himself in that terrible place. According to Jesus' own words, he's in torment and he's in agony. And this is where the point of this story starts to take shape. Never in his wildest dreams did the rich man think he would end up there. I mean, he thought, you know, I'm a good guy. I come from an affluent family. I have high social standing. I don't cheat on my wife. I, don't, I tip the waiter. I don't cheat on my income taxes. I'm a good, good person. Everybody likes me. Surely God's going to like me and, and let me into heaven. And with seconds of entering this godless destination, the rich guy, being in agony, looks up and sees Father Abraham. And he shouts, Father Abraham, in Luke chapter 16, 24 is where we're at, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. You see a hint at what the rich guy is trying to say here and what he's thinking. He said, even if my social status and, and nice guy didn't get me in, maybe if I appeal to Abraham because I'm his descendant, he'll be able to do something, pull a string, do something because of my lineage. I should be able to, to, to cross this gulf and get into heaven. But how does Abraham reply? Just paraphrasing, he said, I wish I could, but I can't. You see, there's this huge, immovable chasm between where I am and where you are. You've made some decisions on earth, and these decisions are now final. You say, what is that chasm? It's our choices. It's our choices. And it's at this point that the climax of the story takes place. The last line from the rich guy says that, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them that they will not come to this place of torment. When you look at the, the way that this, this is set up in the Bible, the structure of the words and everything, this guy has been in hell maybe five minutes before he cries out. After trying to fix it, this for himself, after trying to get himself out of here, you see where his heart goes. It asks for the salvation of those who he loves. And what I get from this story is this. Five minutes in hell was enough to turn this arrogant, self-contained, self-sufficient, rich guy into a wannabe evangelist. One of my spiritual heroes, the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, had this to say about training pastors. He said, most Christians and most churches would like to send their ministry recruits to Bible college or seminary for four to six years. He said, I have a different way. I want to propose a different way to train them. I would ask God to send them to hell for five minutes. 
Five minutes in hell would do more than anything to prepare them for a lifestyle of passionate ministry for the gospel. Another thing that we learn from this story is that according to Jesus himself, our location in eternity is not based on social standing. It's not based on lineage. It's not based on good works or worldly wealth, how many followers you have in social media. If you got sprinkled as a baby or immersed as an adult, it matters about if you have accepted God's grace. After Jesus himself, Paul is our biblical expert on grace, and he said this about Jesus in Titus chapter 3. It says, Jesus saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy being justified by grace. That word grace means unmerited favor. You did not earn it. You cannot get more of it. It is freely given by God. God's grace is his cheerful willingness to grant forgiveness to anybody honest enough to admit that they are not God and that they need God in their lives, to change them at their very core, to be what Jesus, what Jesus says in John chapter 3, to be born again. You see, it was probably a lot easier for Lazarus to do this than it was for the rich guy. Because Lazarus' entire life had to depend on others. He knew what humility was. He wasn't too proud to ask God for forgiveness. And God not only granted it, which just by itself would have been mercy, but instead He gives him more than just forgiveness. He gives him grace, that unmerited favor. So instead of just getting into heaven, he gets a seat at the right hand of Abraham. Or in, in, in our Christian way of understanding it, it would have been at the right hand of Jesus himself. So instead of getting what he deserves, he gets forgiven. And instead of just giving forgiven, he gets blessed with one of those best seats in the house. The second thing that we shouldn't miss in this story was a permanency of the afterlife. Abraham says, we can't cross over. You can't cross over. There's this gaping chasm fixed between us that no one can get across. Your decisions are permanent. According to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, our location in eternity will be permanent. Only the living can ask for grace. You think this is a New Testament thing that we're discussing here, but even the prophets of the Old Testament said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Because when you get to that other place, he is no longer here. He is no longer able to forgive you at that point. If you choose to push him away on this earth, he will honor your choice. God is fair. He will honor your choice and place you far away from Him in eternity. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter two verse, or chapter 6, verse 2 says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. When this life passes, 
We get to live forever with the consequence of that choice, what we did with Jesus Christ. The third thing we learn is something I've already touched on. Five minutes in hell turned a hardened, anti-God person into a raving evangelist. And when we read this story, we have to admit that there is an unscapable truth, very uncomfortable truth, a truth that may, may make us just want to run out of the building right now. But it is something that Jesus is teaching us here. Hell is a very real place. And real people go there. It's not just the Adolf and Hitlers or Idi Amin's. It is the person that might be standing to your left or to your right at the bus stop. It may be some of the people you might walk into and bump into at Quick Trip after church. It is going to be your everyday person and what they did with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't want anyone to go there. It's an awful place. Torment, agony. Bible says elsewhere it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth because you're in pain as, as a Almost nurse, I, I see people in this kind of pain where they just grit their teeth and almost break their teeth at times when they become so much pain. Well, this, th these people have this for all eternity. Five minutes in hell, and this man who lived apart from God his whole life is pleading, send somebody, please send somebody. I don't want anyone I love to join me here. Well, how did Abraham respond to that? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, they have the Bible. Anyone within the sound of my voice, if you're in this room right now, or you're listening on the internet, or you'll watch the Facebook feed at some other time, you have no excuse for not reading God's Word. None. It's free over the internet. You have access right now on your phone, not just to look at silly cat pictures, but to access the entire Harvard Theological Library if you want to study God's Word. There is no excuse in 21st century America for a person not to have access to a Bible. But this formerly rich guy thinks that's not enough. He said, no, Father Abraham, if someone rises from the dead and goes them, then they'll repent. If they see somebody rise from the grave, that will be enough to convince them. But Abraham says, they will not even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Remember in the beginning I said there were four people in this story. Fourth one just got introduced. The fourth person in this story is Jesus himself. He said, how can I think about that? Because he's only a few weeks from going to the cross. He knows he is going to rise from the dead. He knows that he is going to rise and, give, and be willing to give life to anyone who wants to get it. But there are still people who will refuse to believe even when somebody rolls from the dead. And by his death and resurrection, Jesus destroys the rich man's Last argument. Friends, people aren't going to hell for lack of knowledge. The knowledge is there for them to find. They go to hell because they don't want to find it. 
right after Jesus gives us the most incredible news ever given to human beings. That thing we see held up at football stadiums, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he gave us his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world can be saved through him. The best, absolutely most incredible news ever given to humanity. He then goes and tells us why people reject that good news. In John 3.19, this is Jesus speaking. He said, this is the verdict. That word verdict means proven truth. That's the word we use in court. If there is a verdict, it's because one side has proven their case. In other words, Jesus is saying this is eternally proven truth about humanity. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fears that his deeds would be exposed. That's 21st century this. People go to hell because they love their sin more than they love God. That is the verdict. And that is what is holding them back from accepting God's gracious gift named Jesus. I want to ask you, is there anyone here that feels a little poke from Jesus right now? I said in the beginning, I'm just a mailman. I'm just delivering mail. I didn't write this. I'm not trying to be a megachurch pastor and telling you everything's going to be okay. i got to deliver God's truth. And God's truth is this. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. God's grace comes through His Son, Jesus. You may feel weight and conviction in your heart right now. You may feel like you want to run out the door. That's because Jesus is standing at the outside of your heart and knocking. He needs you to open the door and let him in. Again, the Bible says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world can be saved through him. He wants to save you right now. He wants to break that bad habit. He wants to free you from a lifestyle of sin. And he wants to put you into eternity with him. But the opposite of that is also true. If you resist him, He'll honor that choice. And we've already looked at what happens to those who resist. Lord Jesus, I just ask that you knock loudly on people's hearts today. I ask, Father, for your provenient grace that can come in and let them open that door to accept you as Lord, as God, as Savior and King, to repent and turn from a lifestyle of sin and self-dependency and to turn their lives over to you for all of eternity. Hallelujah. Father God, I just thank you. I thank you for your word even when it hurts. I thank you for your word even when it irritates us. I thank you for your word even if it challenges us and makes us want to kick and groan and fight and spit and everything else, that you still show your grace, that you are still patient with us and still drawing us into your kingdom. 
Hallelujah. Jesus wants to save you. He wants to change you. He wants to bring you into his Father's kingdom someday. And he wants you to recline at his table as an honored guest. Think about that. We live our lives in rebellion against him. And yet he gives us that place of honor when we turn to him. Father God, I just thank you this, this morning, Lord. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you this morning.